All right, in today's episode, we're going to geek out on some market research to make sense of what's going on in the real estate markets. Let's go! Welcome to the Russell Westcott Podcast, helping real estate investors like you acquire the inspiration, knowledge, and skills that you need to start, grow, and scale the real estate investing portfolio of your dreams. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast, episode number 102. Wow. So again, I know I mentioned this in episode 101, but I just wanted to thank everybody for all the congratulations and well wishes and shares and comments and feedback from episode 100. I sure hoped you liked that compilation of inspiration, if you will, and come back to it often. Please do come back to it many times. If you're needing a little shot in the arm or you just need a little a little soundbite, a little meme to kickstart your day and get things going. Okay, guys, today um, we're going to geek out here. Uh, things I believe in very, very strongly is surrounding myself with people that know a lot more than I do. One of the things I believe is surround myself with the wisdom of people that have been down this path before me, people that have had the map, people that have led this journey, who have been before me, who have broken trail. That's one thing I firmly believe in is the wisdom. Finding people that have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, you know, not just somebody who's, you know, made a a quick flash in the pan and maybe been around three, four, five, six, seven years. Finding people that have endured long term, people that have taken the lumps, people that have been kicked in the stomach, people that have just you know, had stuff handed to them and just kept on going. But at the same time, I also want to learn from new people. I want to learn from the new crowd. I want to learn from the new kids on the block, if you will. I want to learn from uh, what's going on to just keep everything current. So take it all in. Take in the wisdom, take in the new. But at the end of the day, surround yourself with expert people. Surround yourself with extremely smart, intelligent people that understand what's going on. That would be the best way I would describe today's conversation. So I had the wonderful opportunity to reconnect with somebody that I hadn't talked to for probably about a decade. And in this episode, we share a little bit of the backstory about how we first met and uh, how I had recently heard from him again. And it was funny, I hadn't heard his name for quite a while. And it's going to be Mr. Ben Rabidou, who's an expert in research and an expert in analytics and an expert in data of making sense of numbers, do predictive analysis on what's happening with real estate. And I shared in there, it was probably a couple months ago, and I hadn't heard Ben's name for a long time. And then all of a sudden, I heard a couple guys from Central Canada, and Ben was on there, and they were talking about Alberta, and they were talking about Calgary, and they were talking about Western Canada. And my earbuds honestly almost popped out of my head when they were talking about how exciting that, you know, the best up-and-coming markets are in Alberta again, and the up-and-coming, the hottest market is in Calgary. And I was hearing all these things, and my earbuds just popped out of my head. You know, we've been saying that, my business partner and I have been saying that for a better part of 18 months to almost two years ago. Go back. You can actually go back and track when the first one, the Why Edmonton, Why Now video and thing that Jason and I put out. That was about two years ago. So first of all, congratulations to those of you that jumped into the market at that time. The numbers are starting to bear fruit. The numbers are starting to fall in line as we talked about at that time. It was still very early and we made those calls. It was really early in the process and it was tough sledding. 
for a little while there, and nobody was believing us. But for the select few of you that actually jumped in, you are being rewarded very handsomely at the moment. And honest to goodness, it's just started. And that's something that Ben and I talk about. I think he used the analogy as it truly is you're in the second inning of a nine inning ball game here in Alberta. It's just getting started. So anyways, whew. I gotta take a little breath here and get some water. I'm, I'm just that so excited because I was actually getting, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I get into the, the learning research and all this kind of stuff, I get excited. I visibly was like pounding on my desk and I was jumping up and down and it was exciting. This was a fun, fun conversation. We talked about some very deep topics. We talked about inflation. And this is something that we went really deep into, not just what inflation is, but the psychological, the psychology the thinking behind the inflation, if you will, when there's multiple different layers of inflation that I didn't know before, and Ben did a, such a wonderful job of articulating that. We talked about interest rates. We talked about mortgage rule potential changes. We talked about population growth. We talked employment. We talked supply. We talked demand. We talked national. We talked regional. And then we also took a dive into the Alberta marketplace towards the end. And uh, for those of you, if you are interested in investing and in into Alberta. Ben did a wonderful job of um, articulating what's going on out in the Alberta marketplace. The other thing is very pay very close attention towards the end when I asked him the question is about what keeps him awake at night and what risks does he see in the marketplace. So make sure you listen right through the very end and pay attention to that. And as well, we always look into the crystal ball a little bit even though right now it's a little foggy and it's a little fuzzy. But we talked mainly crystal ball within the next 12 months, which we probably can confidently talk to based upon what we're seeing in the fundamentals that are going on out there. Okay, gang, there's a lot to get into, and I don't want to yammer on too much more. But honest to goodness, within the first three minutes and 14 seconds, Ben dropped so many bombs in this episode. So with all that being said... Put your hands together. Everybody, if you're in your car, if you're on the treadmill, if you're working out right now, put your hands together for Mr. Ben Rabadoo. Ben Rabadoo, how are you today, my friend? How are things out, out in Eastern Canada? Well, I'm seeing that we got uh, we got the same barber here. You know, Gillette Mach 3 is really good. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's very, you're looking very stylish. Yes, are are you a, a Clippers guy or are you a Blade no. guy or how do you how do you do your hairstyle? Oh, I, I am Clippers. Yeah, kind of the little uh, little half moon shaped Clippers are the best yep. I find. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you, you want an insider tr- secret? I found this head shaver um, this past year called the Pitbull. Makes me feel a little more manly. Is you can actually use it in the shower. You put it in your hand and you just shave your head while you're in the shower. We're doing all your good all thinking right? and thinking about all your research. Oh, there you go. Okay. Well, thanks for that tip. See, see, I, you come here for for hair grooming tips, right? <laughs> <laughs> ben, well, thank you for accepting this invitation. It was funny. We were just uh, on Twitter uh, a week ago, and you were making some wonderful tweets that you do. I highly encourage you to follow Ben on Twitter here. And we just had a little back and forth and, and said, why don't you just jump on the podcast and let's talk about some of the research you're doing. So, So first of all, thank you for jumping in here. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start. Let's start at the beginning. So, most of my audience probably doesn't know you that well yet, but you will get to know Ben very, very 
uh, well here. I was listening to, you know, Tom and Nick's podcast, you know, Your Life, Your Terms, the Rockstar podcast a little while ago. And, and I heard your name pop up and I hadn't heard your name for about 10 years. It's been a while. And you were making, just dropping knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb. And I just, you know what, I, I need to reconnect with Ben because, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, when you first came out on the scene, you were you were a very big housing bear, if you will, when you first came out, weren't you? I was. It's funny. I um, There's definitely been you know, a shift in thinking, right? I mean, you have to be true to the data. And there was a time where I felt that the data was uh, concerning in terms of what I was seeing build up in household leverage. And so I was quite vocal about that. And with the benefit of hindsight and a, and a bit, you know, time is the great equalizer and the great humbler, as it turns out. And you realize, you know, you may not know what you think, you know, and, uh, you know, any good analyst is forced to reassess their worldview. And so what happened was I was, um, it became fairly, I guess, bullish on housing, very bullish heading into, into 2019. So late 2018, heading into 2019. And really the, the cause of that was just this relentless decline in inventory that we were seeing across the country. And you just couldn't watch this relentless decline in, in resale inventory and not recognize that we were heading towards just like a blow off top for housing. And so, you know, turned quite, I guess, reluctantly bullish at one point and then eventually just kind of embraced it. And, you know, here we are. And I, and I do think most markets in Canada are going to squeeze quite a bit higher through the first half of the year. And then, but I do think, I do think the back half of this year is going to be a little more challenging and we can get to talk about that, but, you know, bearish Ben may, may at some point make a, make an appearance if the data warrants it. But for now I, I am, uh, I'm quite optimistic. Holy moly. In three minutes and 41 seconds, you dropped a whole bunch of, you dropped a whole bunch of bombs already here for us, Ben. <laughs> uh, it was funny. It was, you know, back at the time and, you know, I was with the Real Estate Investment Network at that time. And it was honestly like, it was, it was like either Garth Turner and Ben Rabideau, Rabideau right? you guys were uh -oh. perennial bears. <laughs> but one thing is I 100% respect your position that you had at the time. It was 100% fact-based. It was research-driven. And at that time, it was probably, what the tea leaves were telling you at the, with based upon the numbers, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, I would I would say that um, I'm okay with any analyst. Look, when you're in the prediction business, you're going to get stuff wrong. I mean, that is the reality. And that's yeah. what that's day of the week is it, right? That's the... <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, I don't begrudge anyone who is wrong on a call that they formed that was intellectually honest based on the data at the time and that was made in, in good faith. But you can't be perennially wrong and not reassess your view and, and cause yourself to question what you might have missed, right? And so, look, you know, at some point, the data will warrant a more cautious stance on housing. Uh, housing, at the end of the day, is cyclical. We will see another cycle in our lifetimes. But as it stands right now, you know, I've come to appreciate the magnitude of some of the undersupply that we've built into the market, especially single family in some of the big, big cities, which I did not fully appreciate at the time. Uh, and at the end of the day, we have not seen a true interest rate cycle. And as long as employment stays robust, as long as population growth stays where it is, and as long as rates don't really start to moon, then it's hard to get super bearish on housing. Yeah. At least not yet. Well, 100% agree. And, and, you know, just talking about dovetailing that, there's an entire government agencies that start with a C and end with a C that had some pretty uh, interesting calls over the last couple of years. And I'll leave it at that for, for well, interesting. Okay, let, let, all right. Well, let, let's say this, though. I think everybody gets a pass in the early days of COVID. Yes. Okay. Because let's be honest, that was really, that was a crazy time. We're going to go our entire lives, and I don't think we're ever going to see another period of such economic turmoil. 
And to be staring at those economic charts and watching the magnitude of the job losses and just, I mean, unbelievable economic carnage, you couldn't look at that and at least, you know, frame it in a slightly concerning light, right? I mean, so I I think everybody at that point gets passed. Nobody saw the magnitude of the government fiscal response. Nobody, right? And nobody saw how quickly the economy would rebound. So, you know, if anybody did get that call right, kudos to them. They'd be like one in a thousand, right? Yeah, but exactly. that's a tough one. I, yeah, CMHC was way off on that call. I was obviously, when COVID hit, you look at that and you go, holy cow, there's no way this ends well. Yeah. And it did. It ended up, but, you know, I've got a whole note out just kind of dissecting how that pandemic ended up being so positive for real estate. And, yeah. and it really is quite, uh, it's quite stunning. 100%. Now, I remember we had a, a funny, it's with Tom, Tom Karadza, and I had a conversation and we were sitting here going, we were sitting there going, you know what, we potentially could see the the fear at the moment is deflation. And they're trying not to make sure we don't, deflation is going to be significantly worse than inflation. So let's make sure that the market doesn't deflate so we can't get it back. So the money and the stimulus and everything came. And then maybe the pendulum swung a little bit. Maybe the pendulum swung way too far to the other direction. That's a good way to put it. I think you're absolutely right. We, the early days of the pandemic, the last thing you want in a highly levered economy like Canada is, is a deflationary spiral. Yeah. And so the risk is you, you, that you overcompensate to the other side. And, and I think we're seeing that. You're absolutely right. We're seeing inflationary pressure. Some of that supply chain related. But man, we created a lot of new money supply in Canada. Man, I wrote about that extensively. We've never seen the sort of monetary and fiscal stimulus that we saw really since the beginning of 2020. And and it's just a remarkable time. So it's it's really difficult to have had strong conviction in the early days of COVID around anything because it was just such a weird time. Yeah. It's funny how when some people we just say, yeah, we created an awful lot of money supply in the system. And a lot of people will sit there and go, uh, well, I'm not seeing it. Where is all this money? Where did it all go? <laughs> right, so. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, a lot of it, I mean, you're right. I mean, a lot of it ended up going to... Uh, yeah, things like like asset purchases by the central bank. So the bank can end up buying hundreds of billions of dollars worth of government bonds. And so you don't see it because they bought it off the people who were selling it, right? And then they in turn turned around, took that money and bought financial assets. So you get stocks go way up and real estate goes way up. And that's where you see that money end up getting squeezed into. Yeah. Well, I know we jumped right into the deep end and the deep waters here, Ben, but uh, you mind if we take just a pause and a step back and, you know, where part Who of Canada I? are you living in? Yeah. Give us a little bit of your background. If you, sure. it's, it's like we meet each other and we we just jump right in and, and share all the gold after that. Two real estate uh, yeah. aficionados are chatting. Yeah, we're just That's geeking right. out here. But tell us a little bit of your story. Where, where are you from? What led you down this path of being a real estate analyst? Are you an investor? Just give us some of the backstory. Sure. So I'm in kind of central Ontario, a little north of Toronto is where I'm based. I started in my early days, I had a, a, a public facing website that you kind of referenced, got a lot of traction back in. I actually, I started that, I believe in 2011. And by 2013, had enough of an institutional following. Uh, and of course, that website focused a lot on housing, macroeconomic trends, household credit, I had enough of an institutional following that was able to sort of parlay that into a, an institutional research product that is being consumed by wealth professionals in Canada and globally. So those would typically be mutual fund companies, pension funds, some hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, those types of big pools of capital. And so that company today is North Cove Advisors, and that is still an institutional-only product. Uh, And I am still active with that. And then more recently, I've started a separate 
service that's exclusively for real estate professionals, and that's called Edge Analytics. And so there I take some of the same concepts, maybe not quite as in-depth because it's not necessarily relevant to folks like yourself to understand how some of these, you know, these data points might affect markets, but really what you want to know is how is that going to affect real estate and interest rates, et cetera. And so try to boil that down for you guys. Uh, we do two reports a month. And then also I think what's very valuable to my clients is we do um, marketing infographics. So we take some key concepts. I've got a great marketing infographics team that then churn out these really cool infographics and people like subscribers are allowed to uh, take those. They can put their own branding on them. They can share them as their own. And it's just a way for them to kind of keep a touch point with their clients and their prospects and, position themselves as sort of a, a thought leader in the industry. Yeah, there's one of them right there. Yeah. So they do a pretty good job of that sort of stuff. And so it's been well received. The idea ultimately is to create sort of a network through edge analytics from which, you know, my dream is to be able to have enough subscribers that we can kind of start gathering intelligence from people across the country about what they're seeing in real time, right? What's happening with uh, lead generation through their websites, uh, foot traffic through open houses, and ultimately to try to create sort of a forward-looking index of real estate activity, if we can gather. Because my view is real estate professionals are sitting on a ton of knowledge and really forward-looking knowledge about what's happening in real estate and credit. And if we can kind of harness that, then we can create some really cool data that can give us some predictive value. And ultimately, that's a value for my institutional clients. So that's kind of the big picture wow. with edge analytics. Yeah. So you live, sleep, and breathe data and numbers. But more importantly, you're Fair able to, to read what they say and and make, you know, tangible action steps, if you will. Yeah, that's right. And so you've seen kind of the research that I do. It's, uh, you know, it's a lot of high level national, but then also try to drill down on some of the various uh, regions. And then a lot of, you know, looking at the big picture trends, looking at key risks that are affecting the economy right now. Obviously, we're spending a lot of time looking at inflation and interest rates prior to that, as you're seeing on the screen. You know, you you had to talk about COVID because you couldn't have a view on the economy and housing without having a view on freaking COVID. So uh, it's just whatever's relevant. We kind of roll that into kind of a, a big report and try to give people some thoughts on all that. Now, Ben, you, you sent me over a couple of wonderful reports and I've earmarked them and got posties and highlighted and all that kind of stuff. I would imagine you offer those for sale or do you offer them on your website? Is there a way that... Well, I that's can... all great. Yeah, okay. So thank you. So edgeanalytics.ca... Yep. Anybody that's interested in that, and it's exclusively for real estate professionals. So whether that is realtors, mortgage brokers, developers, appraisers, even people in the insolvency industry, anybody that's kind of connected in any way to the real estate industry that would benefit from a, a deep dive into housing and consumer credit trends, they would be eligible to sign up. And then once you sign up, it's uh, 30 bucks a month. And for that, you get, you know, call it typically four to five infographics every month. Plus you get these two research reports. And so the way I try to think about it is if you're a real estate professional, yeah, you're going to pay good money for good inf marketing infographics. So in a sense, you're getting five infographics, you're paying five, six bucks a pop and you get really good research. If I don't, you know, if I don't mind saying so, you get pretty good research for free and, you know, institutional quality and that'll help all that'll help position you as a kind of an expert in the field. So that's the value proposition that hopefully people will, will relate to. Yep. Well, you can 100% toot your own horn here, if you will. <laughs> feel feel free to do that because if, if you ain't going to do it, who is, right? <laughs> no, and I and I can vouch for it, guys. I, I'm looking at it. I, holy moly, I downloaded these when we said Ben just sent them over to me. There's like 57 pages of in-depth materials here and it's some it's some high quality good stuff. Just, just wanted to give credit where credit is due, my friend. Thank you. 
All right. Whew. Okay. So there's nothing really going on in the marketplace right now, is there, Ben? So totally we just boring. sit here and we could we talk about the weather. We will talk about the Leafs. We'll talk about hockey. We'll talk about our Tim Hortons that we had, and then our, our conversation will be done, won't it? Right. That's right. Yeah. Totally boring. So quick question for you. I have a framework of, and I know your framework is probably extremely more nuanced and robust. And and when I look at a market. My simplistic framework is I I almost get a Venn diagram and I look at people and then I look at the market itself. You know, what's going on economically? What's going on with the people? Are they moving in? Are they moving out? Are they earning more? Are they earning less? Are they working? What are they doing? And the last one is the market affordability trends, things like that. Now, I know that's an extremely simplistic of economic activity, people, and market. What do you look at for metrics when you dive into your research into real estate markets? Oh, man. I mean, there's a lot. So I think you have to have a view from a high level around supply and demand. So you have to, every one of the edge reports that you got does a a deep dive every month into what's happening, both in terms of resale supply, uh, what's available in the market, what's happening in terms of the flow of new listings, and then also potential new supply that's coming online. And then relating that back to what's happening with population and looking at various demographic trends. And so you have to start from that perspective, what's happening supply and demand. But then, of course, you get into the drivers of both supply and demand. And, and really, on the demand side, you have to have a view on what's happening with interest rates and credit availability. And so you know, that's where things get a little more nuanced. And you've got to get a bit more of a dive into the, into the weeds. And you've got to have a, a view on what's happening in the broader economy to have a, a sense of really what's going on with rates and with mortgage policy, yeah. which I would consider to be kind of the big two drivers of how, on the demand side. Okay, well, we're definitely going to dive into rates and mortgage policy as a starting point as we kind of walk down. Now, the one thing that KV I'm going to put in for everybody here is I know we're, in some cases we're going to talk national and some we're going to talk on regional, but as we all know, real estate is absolutely hyper local in many respects. You can get some direction and you can get some trends and you can get some information nationally that you can start drilling down, but it truly is on a local, almost house-by-house basis in some cases. And that's what makes a conversation like this really difficult because you honestly, pardon the pun, you could pull your hair out trying to dive down into how deep do you go into the data to pull out some meaningful information. Yeah, I think that's right. Although what I would say is, I mean, there are certainly national trends that matter a lot. I mean, interest rate policy is a national trend. And I would argue that it's probably going to be the number one, like to me, it's the number one dynamic. I mean, it's it's sort of, it's easy enough to say it's always been in order, but it really is now. I mean, it's, it needs to be front and center because in one sense, we it's easy enough to say oh, we've always had very low rates. We've had a, a persistent trend in declining rates over the last 30 years. And that's absolutely true. But we're potentially into a very different economic backdrop where we may have, and it's difficult to know, but we may have more persistent inflationary pressures that might warrant a much a much tougher tightening cycle. Now, my base, I mean, so for example, you're already hearing a lot of very prominent economists calling for up to seven rate hikes uh, this year and into next year. That's a lot of rate hikes in the context of a, a very levered economy and housing affordability that notwithstanding places like Alberta is extremely stretched in a lot of parts of the country. Seven rate hikes is a big deal. And now I actually don't believe we're going to see seven rate hikes. I think it's, we're more in line for three or four this year and next. But if I'm wrong on that, and I'm very open to the possibility I might be wrong on that too, then I don't care where you are. You know, if you get seven rate hikes, it's going to take steam out of housing everywhere, right? Well, and I don't know the exact number. Maybe you can tell me on this. I would imagine the housing market 
part of the economy is an extremely large driver of what's going on with the overall Canadian economy. And it's one of the one it's one of the pillars that's actually driving everything. And if housing wasn't doing well, we'd be in a seriously different position right now. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. That's actually one of the reasons why I'm skeptical that the Fed or that the Bank of Canada could raise seven times, right? So you're right. Intuitively, you know that that's the issue. And, and to put some numbers to it, we actually, if you look at direct investment in residential housing, and so there's kind of three buckets that that falls into. So you've got new construction, renovation, and the one, what they call ownership transfer costs. And so that is everything associated with the buying and selling of a home, realtor expenses and legals and all this stuff. Now, the long-term average, we're kind of around 5% of GDP is driven by direct housing investment. It hit a high of 10% last year. It's never been anywhere close to that. The prior cycle, so if you look at like, you know, the late 70s, we had a housing cycle in Canada, late 80s, we had another housing cycle. And both of those times, you hit kind of 7% as a peak. We hit a high of 10, we're currently a little over 9%. It's extremely high. And so when you look at direct housing investment, then you also look at consumer spending, right? So household consumption, and a lot of that is driven by this idea of a wealth effect, right? That as you feel wealthier, you're much more willing to whatever it might be, invest in big expenditures, go on a vacation or buy a boat or whatever it might be. And so there's a part of that spending dynamic that's related to people's perception of their wealth. And so when you combine those two, household spending and real estate investment, residential real estate investment, it's been 85% of economic growth over the last five years. I mean, it's basically been the entirety of our economic growth. And so you're right, it warrants a question of how much could they raise before they tip that dynamic. Now, the one thing that I would say, and this is really important, is that households, you know, in spite of all of the many articles have been written warning about household debt, and I have written some of those, and I absolutely was warning about some of the dangers, uh, and there's still vulnerabilities there, to be clear. But the funny thing is, we came out of this pandemic in much better shape financially in aggregate than we did going in. And I know that's a weird thing to say because that I don't want to minimize the reality that the pandemic was a brutal time for a lot of people financially. But when you look across the spectrum of households in Canada, what we see is debt servicing costs are as low as they've been in 15 years. Now, why is that? In part, that's because one of the weird dynamics that we saw during the pandemic is that households actually paid off high interest credit card debt. They either paid it off outright or they rolled it into their savings or into their, into their mortgage debt, let's say we saw household savings absolutely explode. So one of the charts that's in that, in that chart deck that you have looks at the two-year cumulative savings as a share of GDP. And Canadians have saved about $280 billion in aggregate since the start of the pandemic. That's equivalent to about 12% of GDP. We have, you have to go back 40 years to find the last time we have that much savings over a two-year period in Canada. Right. So that earlier comment I made about where did all that money that got printed, it went into the Canadians' uh, balance sheets, in essence. That's exactly right. So I guess my point would be, you know, there's a saying that you never worry about the first rate hike, you always worry about the last rate hike, right? And I'm not at all concerned that one rate hike, maybe two rate hikes is going to tip this market significantly. But there's a point at which it becomes really problematic. And, and so I've done the work, and based on my analysis, if you get six rate hikes, which is kind of the consensus right now, and you flow that through to household income statements, by mid-2023, we're back to record high debt service ratios. And that's a problem. So in that sense, I don't think they can raise rates without tipping the economy into recession. So I actually agree with you completely. 
Well, there's two things. I actually just shot a video just recently of, you know, like I said, Bank of Canada swings and misses on the last announcement. They had a gimme. In my opinion, they had a two-foot tap-in for golfing analogies that everybody was expecting it. It wouldn't have upset the apple cart too much. They could have took a quarter point then. It would have signaled to the market that, you know, we're going to do something about inflation and it would not have impacted things too much. But... They just did more saber rattling. They just did more stop or we'll tell you to stop again, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, down the road, it it may come down that they may have to do some sharper increases, maybe, or maybe just, I think, you know, this is why I wanted to have you on on the call is, so inflation is at an all-time high and whether we believe the number they're posting or not, it's an absolute high, right? Uh, One of the tools is to raise interest rates, But there's a rock and a hard place that the Bank of Canada is at. If they go too high, too quick, they could kill the golden goose that's laying the golden eggs. So I know I talked an awful lot there, and there is a question there. But So here's the question. Your best estimation of what do you think is going to happen in in the short term and and medium term for interest rates? It's a great question. I think um, I'm in complete agreement with you. I expected them to hike this month. And I'll tell you why. And I actually wrote to my clients a, a one-off email just saying, you know, it looks like it's a layup that the bank is going to hike in February, and, and they did not. And But here's why. So there's a couple of components to inflation or a couple of dynamics that can drive inflation, right? And so you sort of understand some of it. You get kind of this, like, you know, this demand pull inflation where if they create too much money, there's too much money floating around in the system. People are buying too many goods, but there's not enough productive capacity to build those goods and services. And so it, consequently the prices go up okay so that's one form of inflation we're seeing that as a result of some of the monetary and fiscal stimulus that we saw the second is what you might call like more of a cost push inflation which is where you have for example supply chain issues uh, and we just can't create enough goods and services uh, to meet the demand and so there's definitely that happening too but then within that there's also a component of inflation that's based on psychology and this is really important and it's something that people don't generally give enough thought to And so if you think about how people behave and their spending patterns might change as their expectations for inflation change, you can kind of get a sense of it. So I'll use a silly example. So let's say that you take a person who's planning on building a deck, let's say, in a couple of years. Now, if they expect that the price of that deck, the goods and the services involved in building that deck are going to rise 2% a year, they might be quite content to just leave their money in the bank and kind of slowly save until they hit hit that number, and then they go ahead and they build their deck. But if all of a sudden now they think that, well, maybe prices are going to go up 20% a year, maybe lumber is going to skyrocket, geez, I can't find a contractor, that the prices are going way up, maybe I should do this now. Maybe I should tap a line of credit and just get this thing built and lock in my prices. Now, if you understand that dynamic and then you multiply it across an economy, you can realize that if their expectations of inflation start to rise, that can create the inflation, right? And so for central banks, you'll often hear them talking about inflation expectations and making sure inflation expectations are anchored. Now, why do I highlight all this? Well, the Bank of Canada has these great surveys that they produce every quarter, and they ask exactly this question. They ask businesses and they ask consumers, where do you think inflation is going to be two to three years out, five years out, et cetera? And right through the pandemic, what we saw is that inflation expectations were perfectly stable, right around that kind of like 3% range And what it was telling us is that consumers and businesses absolutely believe this narrative from the central bank that the inflation is temporary. 
Well, then all of a sudden, last quarter, and we just got this data two weeks ago, last quarter, all of a sudden, those inflation expectations did like a hockey stick. And they jumped up to, you know, four and a half, five percent. And that's a real concern if you're a central bank, because once people start to get that inflationary mindset, it's really difficult to break it without really raising interest rates a lot. And so I expected they would raise rates. They did not. It absolutely raises the risk that they may have to raise them more aggressively going forward. So long-winded way of saying my expectations, my base case is three to four rate hikes this year. But I recognize that if I'm going to be wrong on that, it's probably that I'm estimating under, right? It's very unlikely that we're standing here a year from now and there's like zero or run one rate hikes. If I'm wrong, it's probably more if there's five or six rate hikes. Right. And so there's an asymmetry to the potential outcomes around the, the base case, if you will. Okay. And so awesome. I'd say, you know, three rate hikes, maybe a couple more next year, but I, I really don't think they're going to be able to bring the overnight rate above 2%. Well, I agree in many respects. But, you know, like I said, they had an opportunity to probably signal the right direction as opposed to just talking the talk. They should have. I agree with you completely. Okay, so that's one component. So inflation, interest rates, the talk is, you know, is there's going to be, it's going up, obviously, and it's not going to go up probably as high as they're doing. They're probably overstating it to curb the enthusiasm, if you will. And most people, when it comes to inflation, you hit the nail on the head a lot of psychology is when you're sitting there and you're now sitting and you're doing a home renovation project and you're at Home Depot and you knew a week ago what you paid for a two by four and now it's astronomical. Or the last time you filled up your tank of gas, man, a hundred bucks doesn't even fill your tank of gas anymore. Now everybody's starting to talk about inflation is because it's hitting the pocketbook every day of what people consume every single day. Right. Okay. So inflation, interest rates. Now, what about mortgage, the mortgage market? Is there a tightening of credit? Is there a loosening of credit? Where do you think we are in that cycle? Is there some new products coming out? What do you, what do you see happening in mortgage business, if you will? Sure. So one of the interesting dynamics we've seen over the last, really last six months is we've seen the spread between fixed rates and variable rates has really blown out. So as of right now, you know, you're talking about 160 basis point spread between kind of your fully discounted fixed and variable, which is about as wide as it's been in 12 years. So in other words, you're being heavily incentivized to go variable because you can still get a variable for kind of, you know, under one and a half percent in a lot of cases. Fixed now starting to creep up. There's a, it's hard to get them much under 2.8, 2.9 now for a five-year fixed. And so the result, as we've seen, is that about 55% of new mortgages over the last few months have been variable rate products, which is an interesting gambit as we move into a potential interest rate hiking cycle, because, you know, that has the potential to immediately flow through to monthly payments if it's not a fixed payment variable. So uh, that's an interesting dynamic. On the, the actual, on the regulatory front, I think that regulators are signaling very strongly that they are concerned with investor activity in the market. And look, you don't have to agree one way or the other, but you do have to see what they're saying, right? And you have to at least respect or at least recognize that that they typically signal and they tip their hand ahead of these big potential moves. And so, you know, what I always do is I'm always reading anything that Austin puts out, the Bank Canada, CMHC, and you kind of look for trends. And, and they all talk, obviously, as, as key regulators and policymakers in the housing space. And so one of the things, I mean, you can't miss it. Every one of them has been talking extensively about the role of investors and, and how, Increased investment activity might be adding some kind of speculative froth and whatever. So what's the likely policy response? Well, it seems pretty clear that if they're going to move to tighten 
or to take some demand out of the market, it's probably going to be focused on that second property purchases, whether that's investment or recreation. And so I would expect that by, let's say, April, so kind of the peak of the spring selling season, April, May, I would not be surprised if we saw OSCE come out and do a, a minor adjustment to the B20 regulations whereby they might raise the minimum down payment requirement on a secondary property. So I don't know what that's going to look like currently. It's 20%, maybe it's 30%, maybe 35%. And they may even try to limit the share or, or the ability to withdraw from one property as a down payment on another. Because yeah. right? one of the things this government is very concerned about is, is wealth inequality. And the reality is that rising house prices are an issue for wealth inequality because, you know, if you have a house already, you can, it's very easy to buy a second one because you've got the down payment kind of baking in your home equity, right? But the person that's trying to get onto that property ladder, it just keeps moving further and further away from them. And so one of the infographics that we put out last year looked at this crazy stat from Stats Canada where in the first quarter of 2021, just in the first three months of 2021, the average homeowner wealth rose $75,000. And the average renter wealth only rose about $8,000. So you had this massive disparity. And if you look at this particular government, right, the deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland, a lot of people don't realize this, prior to running uh, for politics, she wrote a book that is called, I don't want to butcher the title, but it's, uh, it's Plutocrats, The Rise of the Super Rich and the Fall of Everyone Else. And it was a book all about wealth inequality. So it's a topic of immense concern to this government. It's a topic that is of concern to policymakers. I'd be very surprised if we didn't see the move on this front sometime in, you know, by kind of the peak spring housing season. No, I 100% agree. And there could be a whole open Pandora's box of talking politics and geopolitical and, you know, from politicians that never missed a paycheck over the last couple of years at all about being able to tell us, lecture us on any of Anyways, I digress. The one thing is is a little concerning for me of all of this is, um, and you're going to start seeing it, we're already seeing it, they're starting to vilify the investor. They're starting to vilify and make people that, you know, let's call it the everyday investor, the, you know, the people that work jobs and want to provide for their family and see their retirement savings erode and they're not getting anything else. They decide to invest in a second property or a third property, do a rental property. And it is difficult. If anybody ever sits there and tells you it's easy to buy another rental property and manage a property. And I just read a story where somebody was had a tenant sit in the place for 20 months without paying, right? Mm. Now they're starting to vilify the people that are wanting to create affordable housing options and rentals and second suites and secondary dwellings and garage suites and a third unit on the place and trying to rent some of this out to help with some housing. I'm sitting there, sitting there going, some people might say, you know what? Just not worth it. Why bother? Why should we even do this? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was shocked. So I, um, I went on a CBC call one time and do you remember there was like it was right around that time there was a, a developer i don't remember the name of them now in southern ontario that wanted to raise like a billion dollars and go and buy a bunch of single family rentals yep and then they wanted to add some density and turn them into like multiplexes and then and then create some rental supply and i of course immediately had all these people opposing it and saying it's going to drive rents up and, and i went on and i basically just said look we have a shortage of good single family rental options in Canada from long tenured options, like from deep pocketed investors that, and and one of the issues I hate to say it for somebody that that has a family and wants to rent 
is you're always under this like the axe where at some point your landlord might sell it and you got to move. And so we should be welcoming these big pools of institutional capital that want to buy single family rentals and rent them for long term. Like I said, like, why shouldn't people who want to rent single family have that option? And I was absolutely like attacked on air for saying that. It was hilarious that, I, you know, here I am like the housing skeptic and I'm getting like lambasted by these activists. But, you know, what I would say is there are all these anecdotes about vacant housing. And, and obviously, you know, the definition of vacant in Canada is uh, not what people think. And we'll just leave it at that. People look at the census like, oh, 1.3 million vacant homes. No, that's not correct. But I would say to the extent that there are vacant dwellings, that's absolutely something that people should address. Because if you're a landlord and you are creating a rental unit for a family, you're doing a social good. If you are instead someone that's just looking for a safety box to park and you're consuming scarce resources in some of the housing supply, that absolutely should be something that's addressed. Uh, yeah. And so I have concerns about that. I also have to be honest, I, I do have some concerns around the role of short-term rentals, and I get the economics of them. Part of the reason why the economics are so appealing is because you're effectively creating these kind of pseudo-hotels, but without paying the same tax rates as an actual hotel. And so it's highly uncompetitive. And so, look, I think cities have a legitimate beef on that front as well. But for the average person that just wants to buy and provide you know, long-tenured rental option for a household, I think it's great. We need that. I agree with you completely. Yeah, well, that's how you keep rents down as you create more supply of rental product and more choice for the consumer to do. If there's only if there's only five rental houses in your area, it's going to be a lot higher price than if there was 55 options. Absolutely. You and I understand that. Unfortunately, the the activists that are well-meaning, but they just simply, for some reason, they, they can't see that. Well, you know, and going back to just, you know, and that's one of the beefs I have against rent controls in many respects, in many jurisdictions. Most rent-controlled marketplaces, the rents are significantly higher than an unregulated rent-controlled marketplace in Canada because you're just, you're making the playing field so difficult for somebody to operate a business. Like, like think about this for a second. In what business do we know of that you're regulated at what you can raise and charge your prices for for your product. Like, it's extremely rare, but in rental housing in certain jurisdictions, you're mandated on only what you can raise your rents by. Yeah, it's interesting. There's not often a lot of topics that get like virtual unanimous support within the economics profession, but rent controls as a detriment to new rental supply is absolutely one that virtually every economist recognizes. Right. So you are right. It's again, it's well-meaning advocates for, you know, affordable housing that think that that's the solution. It's a Band-Aid. It does yeah. not solve the problem. I agree. With well, and I'm going to OK, I'm going to ask a couple more questions here. And then I do want to get into the one of the main reasons I really wanted to have you on my podcast was um, I was listening to you and Tom talk about um, and you, you mentioned, you know, Alberta and Calgary, probably the hottest market in the country. My earbuds just popped out of my ears when I heard that about two guys from Ontario talking about Alberta again. And I do want to get there. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question about the following. And so pent up demand. And I know that the millennials is a huge demographic in Canada. 
And I would imagine, and I know that for a fact because I have a very similar scenario in our house here, there's a large demographic of millennials that probably just can't move out of mom and dad's home yet. Maybe they can get the down payment. Maybe even mom and dad will provide the down payment because the equity has gone up in their house so much. But they can't afford the payment once they actually do own a house. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a, a large demographic of millennials still to get into the housing market here? So it's interesting you mentioned that if we had this conversation two weeks from now, we'll actually get we'll have a much better view of that because we're starting to get the 2020 census data, 2021 census data, I guess it was, uh, and they roll it out in kind of chunks. And one of the ones that we're going to be getting the next couple of weeks is exactly that. It's it's the share of people that are living with their parents of various ages. And so we'll sort of be able to back into, in the U.S., and generally demographic trends are fairly similar between Canada and the U.S. And the U.S. has much more timely data on this. And they absolutely find that you've got a record share of millennials living at home, for example. And so certainly that's the case in the U.S. I think it's a reasonable assumption that that's also happening here. And so longer term, that should support housing demand. In the near term, though, it's also very clear to me that we have pulled forward a lot of demand in the near term. And so if you, for example, if you normalize home sales, so let's say home sales per 100,000 Canadians, you know, I've got a chart on this. It was it's in the most recent EDGE report. And it kind of like over the past 40 years, it kind of bumps along at a certain level and I'm going to butcher it, but call it like 800 home sales per 100,000. And then all of a sudden, it, so that's per year. And then all of a sudden it jumps up to almost double that. And so we're way above the long-term norm. and so. In my opinion, I think what we're going to see is an extremely strong spring selling season, in part because people are going to try to front run some of these interest rate hikes. you got people that their bank hand is going to raise this, this month. They're going to go, crap, I'm sitting on this rate hold. I better use it, or I'm afraid it's going to go up more. I better buy. You're going to get some demand pulled forward from that. And then in the back half of the year, I'd be very surprised if we didn't see sales come off a little bit. And you also have to remember that you know we finished 2021 at record home sales nationally, not just by a little bit, but by 21% compared to any other year. And so, you know, it's very difficult, like trees don't grow to the sky. It's going to be very difficult to grow off of a number like that. And so I think it's very reasonable to assume that we have pulled forward some demand. At some point, you need to contend with a bit of a demand gap. And I suspect we're going to get in that in the back half of this year. So you've got sort of cyclical and structural issues at play. The cyclical issues is that we're likely to see a bit of a demand slow down the back half of this year. More structurally, I think you're right. I think that there are a lot of young people that want to buy that can't buy and that will provide sort of a fundamental underpinning to this market. Yeah. So, but there lies, and it's funny why it's so, not funny, it's just why it might be just really confusing because it's just, it's sometimes it just not makes sense. Number one is you have lots of demand. Millennials want to go out. Plus you also, once you couple in the immigration numbers of people coming into Canada, they want to get out. So the demand is there. Supplies not there. But then on the other hand, the affordability is a huge umbrella over top of it too. Like if somebody can't afford a million dollar home in Hamilton, they're kind of stuck. They they may want to get out there. Might be lots of demand, but if the supply and the price doesn't match up and the affordability, it just ain't going to move anywhere. It's like the what's the old saying is the uh, impenetrable force against the immovable object, and right. what's going to who what's going to win, right? Well, that's exactly right. So in the one of the reports that I sent you actually looked at this topic, and I think you know I sort of coined the term housing nomads and this idea that 
you've got people that they want to find affordable housing or, or housing that fits in their budget. And it just so happens that we've hit this period where work from home has suddenly become a thing. And I don't believe that this is just a cyclical thing. I think we've seen, we had a sort of a structural trend towards work from home prior to the pandemic. It was growing slowly, whatever half a percentage a year of the workforce, or even less than that. I don't know that I'll butcher the exact number. But then all of a sudden, you effectively pulled forward 10 years worth of growth in a year. And now you've got whatever, 10% of the, the, the work. I'm going to butcher the exact numbers. But the point is, I don't think we're going back to pre-pandemic levels of you know office work, let's say. And so that opens up a whole other discussion around, okay, well, if you can work from home, if you can work remotely, and if you couple that with some of the new developments around high-speed rural internet from the SpaceX's of the world, stuff like that, it's potentially a game changer. And so then the question is, well, what areas stand to, stand to benefit from that? Because you know what we've seen is in places like Toronto is a massive exodus of young people out of the city. I mean, the, the latest data is really stunning on that. We just had, for the first time in at least 20 years, and we only have 20 years of data, so it's probably going back even further than that, but for the first time in at least 20 years, we had rural areas grow faster than urban areas. And that's because of this outflow of young people from the city looking for affordable housing. So who stands to benefit from that? Like, I would say I would be long anywhere where you have young workforce, educated workforce, good job prospects, you know, cheap startup costs and affordable housing. And so there you're looking at like, geez, like that's why I'm bullish on Calgary. It's got yeah. all of those. But I also think, you know, Atlantic Canada is seeing inflows from other provinces, primarily Ontario. And um, I think anywhere where you've got kind of like, you know, rural or let's call it suburban, but with fairly rapid transit into the big cities, I think is going to do very well as well. So those are some of the big trends I think stand yep. to benefit from that. Yeah. And, you know, and just right on a boots on the ground type of local thing, I just had a conversation with a fellow a couple of weeks ago and they were in Toronto. They work on an online business through with a large multinational company and they could literally do their work anywhere. So what they chose to do was divest of their property in Toronto. They moved out to Edmonton. They built a house with a garage suite. They lived in the garage suite. They built that. They built the second one. They built the third one. And then by the time they're said none in a couple of years, they'll have like about five or six houses in Edmonton and they're living for less and they're generating a whole bunch of uh, rental income for it. And they didn't have a blip on their income or their work whatsoever. As a matter of fact, they had a better lifestyle that they were talking about is living out somewhere else than living in the hubbubaloo of downtown Toronto, if you will. Yeah, I think that's the big trend. I, and so that gets back to one of the reasons why I'm just bullish generally on uh, Alberta. And maybe this is a good time to transition yep. to that. Perfect. If you give me some leeway to kind of run with this. Please, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I've got to get some popcorn and I got a cup of coffee because I want to hear I want to hear about what's going on in, in Alberta here. Well, I think sometimes you just, you don't need to overthink things, right? I mean, here we are, you can buy real estate in Alberta today still for the same price that you could in 2007, right? There is nowhere else in the country where the carrying costs of a single family home is lower today than it was 15 years ago, except for Alberta. And so from an affordability perspective, every other part of the country has gone up and Alberta has gone down uh, in terms of the carrying costs. So it's gotten dramatically more affordable. Now, if you, if you layer on top of that, like the economic outlook, I think is great in Alberta. For one thing, I mean, it's easy to say with oil today at $93, but I've been saying this since it was in the 20s, is this idea that we're going to transition easily and quickly away from hydrocarbons is just ludicrous. We are going to be 
needing oil for we'll probably see demand growth for oil for at least another 10 years you're going to need we're going to we will both be using hydrocarbons extensively for the rest of our lives and so yeah. uh yes we're going to see a move towards you know electric vehicles and, and yes there's a push towards decarbonization i'm 100 for it but the path function matters immensely and so we're just not going to move away from from hydrocarbons so this idea that the hydrocarbon industry oil is dead is was always ridiculous to me but even if that's the case let's assume that that is the case where else can you move and find ultra cheap office space for a startup and ultra cheap property tax and just general taxes and ultra cheap housing for your employees? There's no other world class city that has that. And so, you know, there's a saying that the cure for low prices is low prices. And if you make things affordable enough, it'll create its own demand and, and you'll see a booming industry. And so, you know, I've got a good friend of mine is sits on advisory board, the city of Calvary, Calgary around tech startups. And he said, it's absolutely booming right now. And I believe it. it, it can't help but boom when you've got startup costs that are that inexpensive. Uh, and so, you know, then you, you take a step back and say, well, what are the concrete dynamics that we're seeing? Well, population growth is a big one. And I know you like focusing on population growth. And so what I see are sort of two things. One is, for the first time since the oil price crashed in call 2014, 2015, Alberta is now a net recipient of people coming to the province from other provinces. Okay. And so, you know, it, for a long time, there was losing people on a net basis. You know, some people were coming, a lot of people were leaving. Uh, and now we're back to attracting people from other provinces for the first time. The other thing that's interesting to me is if we look at, we get these great population estimates in the labor force survey every month. And it gives you a sense of how Stats Canada is thinking about population growth in various provinces. And when I look at Alberta, we're seeing their estimates of population growth at the highest that they've been since 2014 over the last three months. And so it's telling me that they're seeing population growth returning. And, and that just intuitively makes sense to me. And so you got population growth coming. The resale market is incredible in that it's like quietly put in a record year for sales. You've got inventory that's about 30% below where it was a year ago, and it's been cut by almost in half from where it was five years ago. And so when you look at it on like a supply-demand basis, like what I call months, well, I don't call it, it's, it's called months of inventory, right? The idea there is if you had 100 homes for sale and 20 of them sold in the most recent month, you would say you've got five months inventory, take five months to sell those homes. Uh, and so that's like a key metric for measuring kind of supply-demand balance in a market. And right now in Alberta, Months of inventory are the lowest they've been since 2007. And so another way to think about it is the last time that months of inventory was this low in Alberta, prices in Calgary were rising 30% a year. And in Edmonton, they were rising 40% a year. And right now, you're less than a quarter of that. And so, you know, you throw all this together, you look at prices in, in Calgary. Most people don't believe this, but for most of Calgary's history, it, the prices in Calgary traded a premium to the national average. And today they, they traded a substantial discount, but uh, they, they traded only about 60% of the national average. My view, there it is right there. And so my view is that Calgary is going to trade back in line with the national average. And so whatever you think is going to happen to house prices nationally, if house prices go up 10% next year, I think Calgary goes up 15 or, or whatever. If you think prices nationally are going to fall 10%, Calgary might be flat, but it's going to make up that ground. And to me, uh, on a relative value basis, it's just incredibly compelling. That's where I fall on that. Ooh, hang on, hang on. Woo, woo, it's getting hot in here, brother. Woo-wee. <laughs> <laughs> You're bringing the fire. And when you bring the fire, what usually gets ignited? It's dropping bombs. 
<laughs> okay, so you're getting me all excited here, Ben, and, and this is uh, only when you geek out on this kind of stuff. So I 100% agree. And some of the research, I'm going to just add this to you as well. If some of the population projections that I've seen about Alberta is they're forecasting in the next 20 years of adding 2.1 million more people, which is a 48% growth rate. That same number of the same time in Ontario is half that at 24%. And they're also forecasting that Alberta is going to be more populous than British Columbia in the next 20 years, that it will be the third most populous province in the country. And when you have, whether that number is right or wrong, more people are coming in. And when more people come in, you need to have more housing to supply the people. And right now, there's a, there's a shortage. There's a shortage of some good serviceable land because over the last couple of years, developers haven't bring in, been bringing on serviceable land because it hasn't made sense. So they're going to have to start turning that pipe on and we're going to have to start getting the sales. And then for some people sitting there going, this is just some on-the-streets information for people listening is there's a large group of people that would have bought properties in 2006, 2007, 2008 at a quote-unquote peak of the marketplace. And they're probably sitting here 15 years later waiting to wonder when they can sell those places. And there's going to be an inventory, a shadow inventory of those properties coming onto the marketplace that you can pick up as well. So there's, there's a large... And people say, well, the inventory is not there. I believe there's going to be more houses coming on into the marketplace in Edmonton and Calgary over the next um, couple of years as well for people that just want to maybe sell a place that they bought at a last peak as well. That's an interesting take. Yeah, I, that may absolutely be. The one thing I do wonder about if I if I were to just give one point of potential caution is I actually think that because of how incredibly affordable Alberta is, there's a chance that over the next little while, as the resale market heats up, it actually pulls some demand away from the rental market. Because first off, when I look at rental units under construction in Alberta, they're basically at record highs. Uh, and so there is a considerable amount of, of potential rental supply coming. But I just think that when you look at the carrying costs of a condo relative to a two-bedroom rental, you can almost make the argument that there's going to be some component of the rental pool that looks at you know, a market that's starting to heat up. And they're like, well, why are we renting when we could be buying this condo for less than what we're paying and we get the upside appreciation? It wasn't really in the calculus when prices have been flat for 15 years. But when you start to see prices go back up again, I, it wouldn't be surprised. Again, I don't know. I, you know, I could be yeah. completely wrong on that, but it wouldn't shock me just because of how affordable the resale market is. And so, you know, in, in one sense, I guess investors win one way or the other. You either get, you know, really strong rental growth, which is a possibility, or, you know, you, you get decent appreciation in, yeah. in the purchase. So I, I just think, yeah. Here's my take on that. Affordability is a double-edged sword in some respects. It cuts both ways. For the longest time, this is just an Edmonton, because I have a lot of properties in Edmonton and Alberta, is when the affordability is so low that somebody can buy a property, you, you don't lose tenants because they're moving out. You don't lose tenants because they're leaving. You lose tenants because they're buying a home. Right. As the house starts ticking up, the house pricing starts going up, the rents will start going up accordingly as well. Like that's one of the reasons why in, say, Ontario, you have a strong rental market is because if the average house price is eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars $900,000, they can't afford that, so then they'll rent. 
So I believe as the housing prices start ticking up in Alberta and there's no rent controls, the rents will start going up in lockstep together. I mean, I think that's a reasonable base case. You know, I don't know that it's always as clean as that. I mean, we did see, I mean, we saw, for example, even as prices of, uh, of real estate in Toronto was going crazy in mid-2020, we saw the rental market decimated. Right? I mean, rents in Toronto are now back to where they were pre-pandemic, but for a while there, you know, you could rent a condo downtown Toronto for 20% less than you could at, you know, pre-COVID. So I think you're probably right. But, you know, in terms of just what you think about where, where could some of the risks be, there's maybe a risk that, that you see you know, a bit of a soft rental market, not a disaster, but maybe you see, you know, I think vacancy rates, the latest CMHC data is kind of like, you know, 5% range for Calgary, I believe. Maybe it just hovers in that 5 6% range and you get like, you know, inflation sort of a, or rental rate increases. It's not a bad news. Yep. For me, the two biggest things that I look at that I'm I'm really concerned about and I, I want to keep my tab on is the, the people moving in and the other is the job market. If the people are moving in and the people are working, it's a healthy for a rental market, especially in Alberta as well. And I 100% agree there is a healthy supply of inventory of rental stock, especially with a lot of people building some new houses, putting rental suites in it. There is, there's lots of choice at the same time. But if people are moving in and people are working, I think that will be absorbed pretty quickly. That's the one wild card for me as I want to watch is the employment numbers. Yeah, and I'm quite bullish on those, the both yeah. of those. I think I think you're going to see strong population growth, uh, well in excess of the national average in Alberta in the next couple of years. And I think you're going to see very solid employment. And I'm just fading everybody that thinks that the oil patch is dead. You know, we may all want an energy transition. I'd certainly want that for my kids, but the reality is the path function matters a lot, and we're just nowhere near being able to decarbonize the economy and trying to shut down the oil patch is insanity right now. Well, and especially when you consider there's probably going to be 2 billion more people on this planet in the next 20 years, too, and everybody, and there's lots of developing nations that are going to need energy, and right now the only proven affordable at the moment that's proven and it's affordable is the hydrocarbons at the moment, until Mr. Spock comes along and invents the dilithium crystals or on a forest or whatever. And right. that's what we got. And there's a fellow, if you follow a guy named Eric Nuttall, Eric is a fantastic advocate for Canadian energy. And I'm trying to get him on the show as well. But he's a fantastic, I call him a realist. He just looks at it for pragmatically for Canada. And he has a wonderful thesis about we're in a generational opportunity within Canadian energy right now. So I actually invested in his fund. Yep. And I absolutely agree. I'm a huge fan of his. I've been extremely bullish on oil and gas. Actually, it's, been, it's my largest sector allocation since kind of 2020. Even before 2020, I got kind of hammered when COVID hit, but uh, held on and, and it's ripped back. So I, I agree completely. And I just think that the negativity towards the, the sectors created enormous opportunities. So yep. I'm with you on that. He's a great thinker on this stuff. I no, agree. I agree. And, and one of the things that I tell this to people is whether the renewables are coming, and they are, I 100% agree, you need energy to develop energy, new energy sources. Right now in Alberta, they're developing renewable energy, and they also have the energy to create and develop the new energy. So I think it's a perfect storm in many, many respects. All right, Ben, I know you've got a, a hockey game that you have to get to today, isn't it? Yeah, my daughter's playing, so I, I, I'm going to try to make it 
over to that. So I'm bumping up against the clock here. Well, I, I don't want to end on a real negative here, but I do want to, I want to ask one question for you. So I'm going to ask two questions. One, are you going to give me a summary towards the end of what you kind of see? But before we talk about that is what risks do you see in the market, in the housing market? And I know we can't foresee black swans or we can't see another foresee another COVID or any of this kind of stuff. But what dark clouds on the horizon do you see a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about this. <laughs> You're, you must be fun at a party, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is kind of what I'm paid to do is think about where we get the risk from. But um, it's easy to say rates. I almost feel like that's a layup. And we kind of talked about that. There is a chance that this inflation proves to be a little more persistent than they think. There's a chance that that inflationary psychology takes hold and they've got to raise rates a lot more than five or six times to get ahead of it. There's a chance. That's a real possibility. I don't, you know, it's not my base case, but that's out there. I'll give you one that's maybe a little more imminent and that I worry about quite a bit. So what we're seeing, this is less an issue in Alberta, although I know you guys have some bidding wars for sure there now, but I'm telling you what I'm seeing in a lot of pockets in Ontario freaks me out. And here's why. I see homes that in order to win the bidding war, you have to bid 10 to 15 to, in some cases, 20% above any other comparable in the area. And so when you think about what that means, when you go to close the mortgage on that property, the appraiser's got to come in. And of course, you've got to push the closing out and the appraisal out as far as you can. And you just got to pray to God that by the time the appraiser comes 60 or 90 days later, that the market has caught up with the purchase price. And so far, that has not been an issue. Every time that somebody sets a new record in the area, inevitably, 90 days later, everyone else is caught up. But at some point, you just need the market to soften. All you need is for the market to stop going up 10% in three months, which is what it's been doing. And then all of a sudden, all these people that won these bidding wars at 10 or 15% above any other comparable, well, the appraisal comes in. And they're like, there's nothing that justifies this. Prices have been flat since you bid this. And so you're 15% under. Well, now you've got buyers that have to scramble to come up with additional capital to close, right? And so, you know, that's something that I worry about a lot, especially if, I shouldn't say I worry about a lot, but I, you know, when I think about the back half of this year, likely hitting a bit of a demand gap and maybe a little bit less demand and prices maybe start to to, to flatten out a little, that will create an, an issue for people who are paying you know, peak prices this spring. And what we saw in parts of Toronto in 2017 is when some measures were brought in to cool the market, this exact dynamic unfolded. People who had bought thinking that they'd be able to appraise, they couldn't, or they bought one home thinking they could sell their existing home. You know, because that's the thing, in a, in a hot market, you buy first and then you sell later. And that's fine as long as you can get peak price for the home that you're in, because you just paid peak price for the one that you bid on. And so you get all these kind of non-linear dynamics and those tend to unwind in kind of an ugly manner and you get a lot of distressed selling. And it, and all you need, you don't need a crash. You just need prices to go flat or, or go up by a couple percent instead of 10%. And that's all it takes to create some real issues. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a bit of that dynamic at play in the back half of this year. So that's something yeah. to, to be mindful of. Well, you know what? I lived through that in many respects. That's what happened in 2006, 2007, 2008 in Alberta, where they were going in one year, there was a 74%. There was like 47, 74, 30% year on year on year growth. And all of a sudden, I remember the day, it was in August, and I remember seeing the newspaper article, sales finally drops or something, first time in last decade or something it was. 
And that was the start. And you know what happened after that? Literally nothing for 15 years. It was, it's been yeah. flat, if not even yeah. down that it was since 15 years ago. Yeah. And I want to be clear, that's certainly not, you know, yep. my base case for what's going to happen. But, yep. but when I think about the people who this spring are, are, are about to pay top dollar and potentially, you know, 10, 15% above any other comparable in an insane bidding war, at some point, those people are going to get caught when the market just starts to slow a little bit. Not even like prices falling, but when they stop going up three or four or 5% a month, yep. that's all it's going to take is for them to flatline. And then you better hope they've got capital to close because, you know, the bank's only going to lend them the 80% or whatever it is. And it's 80% of the appraised value, not 80% of the purchase price. So they're going to have to make up that difference. And that creates these potentially distressed sales and all sorts of ugly. And that can kind of snowball pretty quickly, especially once you get a few news stories that come out about these people getting burned and then everyone else goes, oh, geez, maybe I should wait too. And the psychology flips very quickly. We saw that in 2017. Now, that's not like, that's probably not going to be a massive you know, crash or housing cycle, but it, you know, it's painful for the handful of people that bought it right at the peak. And so yep. that's just, you know, one of those things to be mindful of, because I do think we're close to that, right? I, I do think that the crazy price that we're seeing where prices nationally, we just saw prices nationally rose almost 3% in one month. That's $24,000 in one month. That's insane. We've never seen that before. Uh, and so, you know, at some point when that drops to, one percent a month or half a percent a month that's still a strong market but for the people who are expecting three percent growth that's a real problem when they go to close and that's all yep. it takes to cause some issues well that's like the analogy i use is you know if you're driving along at on a freeway on the connector there and you're going at 140 kilometers an hour and then all of a sudden you go even to 100 kilometers an hour it feels like you're stopped or maybe you go through a construction zone and you have to go down to 60 you're still moving but it feels like you're crawling I love that analogy. That's that's actually an analogy I've used before too. You're oh, absolutely right. right. That's exactly <laughs> the right way to think about it. It's still a strong market, but it's going to yeah. feel much slower. Yeah, I yeah. agree with that. But don't under, don't get misunderstand me, guys. I think there's actually some things going to bolster the market from having a catastrophic drop. And that is the supply-demand offset that we've talked about, is there's a strong demand, there's no supply. So that'll keep things strong. The other there is the immigration and the people coming in is just going to even exasperate, you know, there's a, a dollar word for you, is going to make it even worse. So I don't foresee any giant collapses, but I also don't foresee any giant torrid pace that has been going on for the last uh, couple of years as well. Well, I think that's the right way to think about it. Just if you're if you're in a crazy bidding war in places like Ontario and you're thinking about paying 15% above any comparable to beat everybody else in a bidding war, like just recognize that there's a risk. The appraisal doesn't come in and then what are you going to do? Right. Yep. That's, that's How are you going to close on it? Right. Right. That's it. And so that's, you know, that's not like a structural housing crash type issue, but for a handful of buyers, it's going to be pretty shitty. Yeah, right? so you know, it'll be painful. Yeah, yeah. Your, your jubilation just goes to uh, pain very quickly here. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so here's what I'm going to end off with the following. So let's say this is just like a, we're on a news story and you had like less than three minutes to tell if someone came and asked you, Ben, what's your best three minute synopsis of what's going on in the housing market? How would you summarize everything, what you're going down and kind of just encapsulate it all into a tight soundbite for us? Yep. Sure. Surprisingly strong population growth, especially 2018, 2019 hit almost 600,000 year-over-year population growth, which we've never seen before. And against that backdrop, we had single-family completions that have dropped 
dramatically from where they were in decades prior. And so steep decline in new single family housing construction, steep increase in population growth. Then all of a sudden along comes a pandemic where all of a sudden the thing that's in most demand is lower density living. And so you you turbocharge demand and you turbocharge demand via low interest rates and you end up with this confluence of factors that leads to this insane market. And that's where we are today. I think we're probably at peak insanity, which is not to say we're at the peak of the market. But I do think that, you know, last month we had 28% year-over-year price growth. I think that's probably pretty close as good as we're ever going to see it on the national scale. So maybe next month is 26, and six months from now it's 10 or 15% year-over-year. But we're going to start seeing a slower rate of growth going forward. And I think in the back half of this year, the combination of slightly higher interest rates and maybe a bit less froth in the market means that we see a bit less demand, which hopefully all else equal will let the market balance itself out maybe a little. But it's very difficult at this point to be extremely bearish unless we get six or eight rate hikes, and then it's a very different story. But three or four, I think this market's okay. Wow. Woo-wee! <laughs> <laughs> Getting hot in here, brother. And, of course, dropping those bombs. So, Ben... You are a pro. You are a pro at what you do. You eat, breathe, and sleep this. You're extremely well articulate. No wonder you, your business, and your company are doing very well because you represent, you're, you're a very good advocate on both sides. You're a very good ana- analyst of what's going on in the market. And I just wanted to just acknowledge that you're doing a hell of a job. So. Thank you, Russell. Appreciate it. It's been a yeah. pleasure catching up. Finally, uh, nice to put a face to the name. Yeah, I looked. I was looking forward to this, and you over-delivered 10x, by the way, my friend. So I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. All right, Ben. Thanks for all your time. And guys, pay attention. More episodes like this are going to be coming out. Have yourself a wonderful day. So, what did you think? Wasn't that a fun episode? I, I don't know about you, but I like I, I geek out on this stuff. I like it. I really do. I like diving in and uncovering the why behind why I'm doing things and the why behind things that you should be doing as well. Okay. So as you can probably tell, Ben knows this stuff. And it was just a wonderful conversation between Ben and I. Did you learn new things? How does Ben's prediction on interest rates and the increases that he's foreseeing, how does that align with what your thinking is? How about inflation? Did you maybe learn uh, a thing or two about some different levels and depths of inflation? How about your thoughts on your real estate market? How about your thoughts on uh, a different market? How about your thoughts on what's going to happen in the short term and what is prediction on probably what's going to happen over the course of the year? And what are your beliefs? Did this reaffirm your beliefs? Did it question your beliefs? Did it lead you to thinking about maybe doing more deep dive analysis into something else? Maybe it reaffirmed the course you're on and you're just going to keep moving forward with velocity. Maybe you're going to be like me and I'm sitting there going, man, I need to double down on my portfolio. I need to double down and add more assets. And if you guys have been following along on my podcast, I've been talking about that for the last few episodes. So that's what we're doing. We're going full guns ablazing an acquisition because I truly believe we're in the second inning. And I believe in Edmonton, we're in probably the first inning of a nine inning game of there as well. So what I want to offer here to everybody is I know I get lots of questions all day long. I get probably three or four people a week emailing me on 
Alberta and Edmonton and what's going on. And rightfully so, because it's, it's in vogue right now and everybody's looking at Alberta and they maybe heard a podcast or two, but make sure you check back to who was the first ones that started talking about this probably a couple of years ago for you. But I see an awful lot of people jumping into that marketplace and making some big mistakes, grave mistakes, that they're going to regret it in the long term. And I've been in that market. I've been doing it for 20 plus years. I've made every mistake possible in that marketplace. I know the bad places. I know the bad types of properties. I know the bad areas. I know the bad tenant profiles. I know all those things. And I also know where the good places are. So here's the message I want to give to you is if you are considering going into the Alberta, and specifically if it's Edmonton, into the Edmonton or the Alberta marketplace, and you need a little guidance and a little help from somebody who has 20 plus years of experience of investing in that marketplace, and who has stepped on all the landmines before you, who has been, who's taken a lot of the, a lot of the stones and rocks and all those kind of things ahead of you, if you are interested in getting into that marketplace, and you need somebody to talk to. You need a good guide. You need a good Sherpa in order to help you on your path forward. What I would be willing to do, and I will do this at free of charge unless I get absolutely swamped and then maybe I'll start charging a consultation fee for this. If you're interested in having a conversation about getting into the Edmonton, Alberta marketplace, if it is for you and also the Alberta marketplace, hit me up in the show notes below. There will be a link where you can click on to do a consultation. It's essentially russellwestcott.com slash consultation. Or on my website of russellwestcott.com, there's a big giant button on the top that says free consultation. You'll have to fill in a little bit of information about you. You'll book a time in my calendar, and I'll give you 45 minutes of my time to have a conversation to see if it's right for you. It's not for everybody. It truly isn't. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I see so many people jumping in with their eyes closed, blinders on, cheap prices. They've heard a podcast episode and, oh my goodness, you can pick up something. You can pick up a, a fourplex for, for this price and look at the cash flow and everybody's got these, you know, they're chasing the dollars, if you will, or they're chasing the yield. I 100% believe it is an incredible market opportunity if you do it right, if you get into the right areas with the right properties and the right tenant profile, this will be an absolute dream home run for you. If you don't get into the right areas, right properties and right tenant profile, this will be an absolute nightmare and you'll be cursing the name of Alberta. You will. Okay. So long wind away, guys, of saying if you need help and you want someone to talk to, I'm here to help and I will support and I will make some consultation times available to help you determine what's the next step for you. Okay, guys, with all that being said, you know what time it is. It's time to end this podcast. And how do we end each and every podcast? With the same message. Remember, in every interaction with another person, always, always, always leave them feeling inspired, encouraged, and always come from a place of love. Bye for now, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Russell Westcott Podcast. Before you run off, could you do us one final favor? Wherever you're listening to this episode, we encourage you to leave a review, share with your friends, and subscribe so you can receive the latest episode to keep you feeling inspired and encouraged for the entire week. Visit www.russellwestcott.com for more information, support resources, and upcoming speaking engagements near you. Bye for now. Bye for now.